Good morning. Uh, welcome again to Calvary Chapel Lee Great to be here with you guys. Uh, today we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke as we take it in verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Today's study will pick up right where we left off last week. And it really is a continuation of the events and details that we started last week. Sometimes when I go, when I'm reading through the scriptures, I kind of try and find like, okay, where's a good break where, you know, change of subject or change of scenery, this will be a good spot to stop. But uh, really, this is a continuation of last week. Uh, if you were with us last week, hopefully it'll just uh, flow very smoothly. Um, if you weren't with us last week, just to remind you, we had a, our study that I entitled Kingdoms Colliding. Uh, and we saw Jesus and the kingdom of God uh, colliding with and overpowering the enemy and his kingdom of darkness. Jesus was with his disciples and a large multitude of people when he encountered a man that was mute as a result of a mute demon that had taken possession of him. And there in front of the multitudes, Jesus cast out the mute demon, allowing the man to once again speak. And the multitudes, they marveled in response to what they had witnessed. But not everyone, as we noted, uh, amongst the multitudes were impressed. There were some who tried to claim that the power Jesus used to cast out demons came from the ruler of the demons, Beelzebub, uh, which is a title that's used in the New Testament to refer to none other than Satan himself. And so the accusation was basically that Jesus was working with Satan to cast out Satan's demons. And it was a very strong accusation but one that made little sense and one that Jesus quickly exposed as illogical and and frankly just absurd to even try and suggest something like that. There were also some who were not convinced by Jesus' actions and words and they demanded more. Uh, They wanted to see uh, a sign from heaven, something that would prove that he was sent from heaven. And Jesus' initial response to them was basically that they had already had enough Uh, evidence, and that they needed to make a choice. In a sense, Jesus drew a line in the sand, and he basically said, listen, you're you're either with me or you're against me, okay? You you cannot remain neutral and undecided on this matter any longer. It's time to choose. You've seen enough. You've heard enough. It's time. What is your decision? Now, today's text is going to continue addressing this same topic of a needed response. The details from our text, they are a continuation of Jesus' words shared to this mixed multitude that was before him from uh, last week's text. It's the same day, same ongoing event, same multitude that he's addressing in our text this morning. So we're going to pick up the account beginning in verse 27 and continuing through all the way down to verse 36 as Jesus continues to address the multitudes before him and challenge them to respond and make a decision regarding Jesus and their assessment of him. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, do your best to follow along. I'd like to request that you all rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word. If you need to borrow a Bible this morning, there's a number of chairs around you that have Bibles underneath them. Feel free to reach down and grab one of those and follow along. Luke, he continues his narrative account in verse 27 with the following. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, 
but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. We're going to stop right there. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask him to lead us through it. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are here with us, uh, that your scriptures promise us, actually, that uh, you've come, you've uh, made residence inside of each and every one of us who have called upon your name, and so we know that you're here with us. We just want to invite you to rule and reign in this place, to move and to uh, speak through your Holy Spirit, through your word. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, uh, give us hearts that obey. And Lord, I pray that as we come this morning, that we would come open, that we would come ready to receive all that you'd have for us. Lord, we do ask just special blessings upon our moms this day, asking that you just have your favor upon them, thanking you for them, um, Lord. But we want to just really put you center stage right now. May you be our focus. May our hearts be in tune with yours. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Today we're going to be looking at a study that I've entitled RSVP ASAP. I know how much you guys like your acronyms, and so I thought I'd do my best here to speak your own language, okay? Uh, does anyone know what the acronym RSVP actually stands for? It, just raise your hand if you know what actually RSVP stands for. Okay? A few of you do. Okay, a few of you do. It's actually French. So if you don't speak French, I don't blame you why you wouldn't know what RSVP stands for. Uh, I never studied French, okay, but I'm going to try and butcher it. But since most of you don't know French, it'll be great. Okay? Um, it's a French acronym that stands for Répondez, s'il vous plaît. Yes, what he said. Okay? Répondez, s'il vous plaît, which translated in English means please respond or please reply or please answer back. Um, of course, uh, ASAP or ASAP, uh, we all know what that is or most of us should know what that is. And you know what? I was always studying this, you guys. I found it quite interesting I don't know, your guys' military acronyms, sometimes you say them out as a word, and sometimes you say the letters. And I don't know what the rhyme or reason is, but I don't think you guys know what the rhyme or reason is for that either. So, you know, with we say sometimes ASAP, or we say ASAP, same thing, right? Um, it, it's English acronym that stands for as soon as possible, okay? Uh, in Jesus' continued interaction with the multitude, this is what the heart of his message is about. Jesus is looking for a response. He's looking for them to make a decision. He's trying to get across to them the great magnitude of their need to properly assess the situation and to come to a decision without any further delay. It is time for them to choose. It's time for them to respond. Now, as we go through our text, we're going to break it up into three different sections. In the first section, we're going to listen to and focus in upon Jesus' response to a certain woman's outburst from within the crowd. Uh, in the second section, we're going to look at some strong words Jesus had towards the evil generation that is before him. And then in the third section, we're going to do our best to learn from Jesus' parable of the lighted lamp and how it applied to his original audience but how it applies to us today as well. Now, upon the first reading of this account, it may seem like these sections are somewhat independent of each other. But as we dive in and we look a little closer, we're going to see how they are all woven together and are all really pointing to the same main point Jesus is trying to get across to them. So take a look again at our first section in verses 27 and 28 as Jesus responds to an outburst from a certain woman from within the crowd. Luke writes, and it happened 
As he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here in our text, Jesus is still addressing the multitudes that had gathered around him and had just witnessed him casting out a mute demon. As Jesus is finishing up his example about the unclean spirit coming back to an empty host and making the life of his host more miserable than ever, a certain woman from within the crowd blurts out this rather peculiar and odd statement. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. You know, sometimes people just say things that make absolutely no sense whatsoever, right? Sometimes you just people say something and you kind of just scratch your head a little bit and you wonder, like, where did that come from? Um, you know, what does this woman's outburst have to do with what Jesus is talking about, right? Why would she feel compelled to make such a statement at such a time, okay, where Jesus is speaking about evil spirits. He's talking about demonic possession, his ability to cast out demons and uh, the need to respond to the evidence that is before them. You know, it makes me wonder, you know, was this woman uh, just a heckler? You know, was she trying to distract people from what was going on? Was she perhaps starting to feel uncomfortable with the direction that this was going and so she sees this opportunity to maybe try and change the subject it's hard to tell what truly is going on here Uh, some suggest that this woman is simply in awe of jesus and his ability to address the naysayers and the doubters and that she blurts out this um, as a spontaneous praise about how wonderful jesus is and how blessed his mother must be to have such an amazing son And maybe that's what's going on here. Again, it is really hard to tell. But I try to put myself in the situation. I don't know about you guys, but I like to do that as I read the scriptures. I like to put myself in a situation. Have you guys ever ever been in a situation like this perhaps before? You know, uh, maybe you're in the middle of a conversation, perhaps amongst a group of friends. It doesn't have to be the multitudes uh, that you're addressing. But you're amongst a group of friends, but maybe the conversation's getting a little heated or perhaps just a little uncomfortable. Uh, the subject matter isn't, you know, something everybody's really fond about. And then someone just blurts out some odd statement that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're talking about. Right? You ever been in a situation like that or can recall something like that before, right? I think most of us can say, yeah, I, I, I've been in a situation like that. In those types of situations... Usually what's happening is someone is trying to signal their discomfort with the situation. And they're wanting to move on to something else. Perhaps that is what's happening here. Now, this isn't always the case. I have to admit, sometimes people are just a little absent-minded. They feel the need to say something. They just blurt out something that's completely off topic and makes no sense. It happens, I understand. Uh, But I don't know if that's what's going on here. Okay? We could give this woman the benefit of the doubt and suggest that she is in awe of Jesus and made this statement in all sincerity. But regardless of the intent behind the statement, it is something that is off topic. It is something that is really distracting okay, to have this woman blurt out you know, this odd statement. Jesus is laying out a teaching about the need to respond to the evidence that he's set before the multitude. He's responding to those within the group that were skeptics and naysayers and doubters, people who tried to discredit him and people who demanded of him more evidence, more proof to verify that he was truly sent from heaven. This woman's statement, it's misplaced. Okay? The, the timing was off. Okay? But Jesus isn't going to allow that to deter him from sticking to the point that he's making. Jesus responds to the woman, stating, more than that, okay, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She's claiming, oh, blessed is this woman. And he says, hey, more important than that, okay, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, before we get to the main point of Jesus' response, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't deny the statement that the woman said. 
And the woman said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And this speaks of Jesus' mother, Mary. And listen, Mary was a blessed woman. Okay? In fact, earlier in Luke's very narrative, as we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke, all the way back in the beginning, back in chapter 1, there was an angel that appeared to Mary and proclaimed, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so the statement that this woman made, it was a true statement. Okay, there's nothing wrong with what she said. It's just kind of when she said it, right? It's like, why would you say that right now? Okay? It really wasn't connected to what Jesus was speaking to the people about. In fact, I would suggest to you, and I think I can make at least somewhat of a case, that in some way what this woman declared was something that could have undermined what Jesus was trying to get across. Let me explain. Jesus was talking about the need for individual people to respond to God's work. God's kingdom had come upon them, as Jesus alluded to in last week's text. People needed to respond and recognize what was going on. However, the Jews, okay, they like to believe that because of their genealogy and because of their family history as God's chosen people, that they were somehow grandfathered into the kingdom, right? That they were part of the kingdom by default. But that is not the case. Everyone must respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. None are grandfathered in. Listen, I'll let you in on a secret here, maybe a secret. God does not have any grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Okay? God only has sons and daughters who have come to him by grace through faith. Okay? You don't get a relationship with the father because your mom or dad had a relationship with the father. Okay? You have to have a personal relationship with the Lord. The overemphasis of the Jews upon their family relations and their perceived default inclusion into the kingdom of, uh, of God is something Jesus is going to address in the subsequent sections of our text. And so it would seem that perhaps Jesus was aware of something behind this statement. Like maybe there was some kind of connection to, oh, this family line and, and look how blessed you are because you're the, you know, your mom's this person and your son's Jesus. Uh, he's going to look and he's going to bring up examples of Gentiles instead of Jews to show that, hey, it's not about being Jewish. It's not about who your mom is or who your dad is. Okay? Jesus said more than that, okay, more important than f family relationships, more important than who you came from, Jesus declares that those who are more blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your background is. The important thing, the thing that truly matters most of all is hearing God's word and keeping it. That's where blessings lie. Here Jesus beautifully redirects this woman's statement and brings things right back to the heart of his message. These people need to hear the word of God spoken by Jesus and they need to respond to it. It wasn't enough to simply hear the word. The people needed to receive it by faith and apply it to their own lives. They needed to live out what Jesus was teaching them. Sure, these people were flocked to Jesus. They followed him around from place to place in order to see and hear of what would happen next. But that wasn't enough. They needed to not only hear what he was saying, but then obey it. They needed to keep it, to receive God's word, and then apply it to their lives. James writes the following in James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. He says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. James, the half-brother of Jesus, okay, that, that's who's writing this letter, right? He knew and understood that it wasn't about family relationships. 
I mean, of all people, James could have been like, yeah, Jesus is my half-brother, okay? We've got the same mom, okay? Bless, you know, look at my, you know, connections, okay? You want to talk connections? But James is like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who your mom or dad or brother or sister is, okay? It's about hearing God's word and obeying it. It's about being a hearer and a doer of the word of God. We need to understand the same. The application for us is the same. This truth applies to us today just as much as it applied to the audience Jesus shared it to some 2,000 years ago. We too need to be hearers and doers of the word. Because according to James, if we are only hearers of God's word and we are not doers of God's word, all we are doing is deceiving ourselves. We're making ourselves feel good about ourselves for you know coming to church and and listening to a bible study all the while not being obedient to what god's word actually says listen if we don't ever allow god's word to penetrate our hearts and to actually change our lives it's pointless okay all we're doing is deceiving ourselves if we come into the church week after week we look into god's word we see what it has to say about us and how we ought to live our lives and then leave this place without ever letting it change us We're like that man that looks into a mirror, sees what he looks like, and then immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Listen, don't let that be a description of who you are. May we be those who come and not only hear the word of God, but actually put it into practice. May we be hearers and doers of the word. Let's move into our second section, dealing with the words Jesus had for the generation that was before him. Let's read verses 29 through 32. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus identified the generation that was before him as evil, or your uh, translation may read wicked, and he said so because they were always asking for a sign. Now, Jesus is addressing specifically the Jewish community here. The Jews Uh, were those who were constantly asking for another sign. They wanted a sign from heaven. But no matter what Jesus did, no matter how he demonstrated the kingdom of heaven, having come amongst them, they would not believe, they would not receive. Part of their obsession with signs is that they were looking for certain signs that Jesus wasn't showing them. You see, the Jews believed that the Messiah would come and usher in the kingdom of God. That the Messiah would come as a political or military leader, one to overturn the Roman occupation of their land and the oppression of those who had come against them. Oftentimes, when they were seeking after a sign from heaven, what they were really saying is, we want you to free us from being under the power and influence of the Roman Empire. We're in bondage here. We want a sign from heaven. And if you think about the history of the, of the Israelites, you think about some of the signs from heaven, you think about the plagues that fell upon Pharaoh and Egypt as God brought them out of slavery, out of bondage. Those were the signs from heaven. And they're saying, hey, we want to see some signs from heaven. Okay? When the Messiah comes, he's going to set up a new kingdom where God and God's people rule and reign over the rest of the world. That's what we want. Those are the kinds of things they wanted to see. But the people had an improper view of the Messiah and his mission. Jesus was their Messiah, and he did usher in God's kingdom. But God's kingdom is a spiritual one first and foremost before it is a physical one. When Jesus Christ returns the second time, he will come. He will establish an earthly, physical kingdom. But that was not part of his mission during his first coming. And so when Jesus didn't meet their expectations... They continually asked for a sign from him, and eventually they turned against him when they realized that he wasn't there to give them what they wanted. Jesus identifies them as evil. That word evil, it carries the idea of being morally corrupt or wicked. 
It speaks of someone that is evil in nature or, or quality. These people, they seeked after a sign from heaven, but they were morally corrupt people. They were evil in nature. They asked for a sign because they did not want to believe in their hearts. Jesus said that no sign would be given to this evil generation except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. And that begs the question of us, right? What is the sign of Jonah the prophet? Uh, How was he a sign in his day and how does his life point to something that Jews should see as a sign for future generations? Well, I think that's a difficult question to answer, okay? Um, Because I believe that it depends upon whom you're asking. You see, in Matthew's account, when Jesus spoke similarly of Jonah being a sign, Matthew highlighted the fact that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish and stated how the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so from Matthew's perspective, now remember that Matthew was a Jewish tax collector, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so from his perspective, the sign of Jonah to the Jews primarily Uh, because of his life as a reluctant prophet on the run from God, he was consumed by a great fish. Jonah had to spend three days and nights in the belly of the fish before being vomited back up upon dry ground so he can complete the work God had for him. In like manner, when Jesus dies upon the cross, he will rise again on the third day and it will be a sign to the Jews that Jesus was who he said he was. And so from Matthew's perspective, the sign of Jonah the prophet deals with the resurrection. You'll be like, oh, what's... What's the sign of the prophet Jonah? What's the resurrection according to Matthew? That was Matthew's emphasis. But here in Luke's gospel, there's no mention whatsoever of Jonah and his three days and nights in the belly of the fish, but simply a mentioning of his ministry as a preacher. Luke writes, remember Luke is uh, a Gentile. He's uh, uh, Greek and he's writing to a Greek audience. And he doesn't mention at all uh, about the prophet, uh, uh, the Old Testament prophet of Jonah and him being swallowed by a fish or anything like that. The, Luke writes, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And so the emphasis here in Luke's gospel is that of Jonah being a sign based upon his preaching and the repentance that it led to by the men of Nineveh. That that example of Jonah going into a place, preaching the way he preached, and getting a response the way he got a response would be a sign to the people, uh, to the Jews. Now, what do we know about Jonah and his preaching that we might understand and uh, how it may serve as a sign to the people? Well, I think most of you are probably familiar, but just in case, we'll do a little simple review of Jonah. The book of Jonah is only four chapters long, okay? But basically, this is the account. Jonah was a prophet of God whom God told to go to the people of Nineveh, the capital city of the ruthless and violent Assyrian Empire during the peak of their strength and to cry out against it for their wickedness had come upon up before the Lord. Okay, and you guys may be familiar with the account. You know, God says, hey, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, nope. I'm going to go this way, right? He says, go this way. And and basically, Jonah goes the exact opposite way. He did not go to Nineveh. Instead, he tries to flee to Tarshish in Spain via boat. And most of you know what happened, right? God sent a great wind upon the seas. The people panicked. They asked everyone to call out to their gods. Eventually, Jonah's travel companions discovered that he's running from the presence of the Lord. And they wanted to know what could be done to appease the Lord. And Jonah basically says, Throw me overboard. That's, that's all you can do is just toss me into the sea. And while they were a bit reluctant to do so, eventually they did just that. And, and the seas calmed down and they were saved. But Jonah's account doesn't end there. For the Lord had prepared a, a great fish to swallow Jonah whole. And he's able to live inside the belly of this great fish for three days and nights. And then subsequently be vomited out upon dry land after he finally prayed and acknowledged God's mercy, and he declared that he would do what he was asked to do. Jonah promised that he would, you know, complete the vow that he had made as a prophet. 
And once back on dry land, the Lord came to Nineveh, uh, the Lord came to Jonah again, declaring basically the same thing: "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you." So Jonah goes. He walks, makes his way to Assyria, and he delivers a gloomy message of doom and destruction. Okay, he walks into the city and he simply states. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Basically, his message to the people was the equivalent of a you're all going to burn type of message. You never heard someone teach that way. Um, And the crazy thing is, you guys, the people responded. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth. They decreed that everyone in the city cry out to God, turn from their evil and violent ways, and hope okay, that God would be merciful to them. And that's exactly what happened. God did relent from bringing disaster upon them. And this actually upset Jonah. Okay? It upset him so much that when he saw the people repent and turn to God, this is what he prayed in Jonah chapter 4. He says, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay? Wow, man, Jonah's heart was in the wrong place, you guys. It was in a very bad place. He was so mad that God was so gracious and merciful, and slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, that he was one who wouldn't, didn't want to harm, and wanted to rather die than see God show these attributes toward a wicked and sinful people. Now contrast that with the ministry of Jesus and his preaching. Jesus willingly left his abode in heaven to come to a wicked and violent world that he knew would reject him. He preached a message of repentance, like Jonah, but he did so with great love and mercy and grace and compassion. Jonah offered nothing but death and destruction. Jesus came and offered hope and new life. He offered an opportunity for people to have their sins forgiven Jonah offered up no signs, no miracles, nothing to substantiate his message. Nowhere in the book of Jonah do you read him telling the people about how he had just come out of the well of uh, the body of a fish. He just goes and proclaims this message and that's it. Yet Jesus has come and shown over and over again, miracle upon miracle, who he is, that the kingdom of God has come upon them. Jonah would rather die than see people respond to this message. Jesus did die so that people would respond to his message. Such a stark contrast. And and that is the point that Jesus is making. He ends his point by saying a greater than Jonah is here. You see, the people of Nineveh, a pagan Gentile nation, repented. At the doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, destruction message of a reluctant, loveless prophet. And yet the Jews have been sent the very Son of God, their own Messiah, one who came with a far greater message than Jonah, and they have not listened nor turned from their ways. The Jews have no excuses for not responding to Jesus. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and condemn this generation for not responding to the message of God. And as a bonus, Jesus also brings up yet another person who would rise up in the judgment and condemn this generation for their lack of repentance, their lack of responding to God's message. It's the Queen of the South. Now, this reference to the Queen of the South is, of course, referencing the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon that's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 9 and in, uh, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Uh, the Queen of Sheba 
was a rich and powerful ruler of an area in the southwest part of the Arabian Peninsula. And she heard about Israel's King Solomon and all of his wisdom and wealth. And she wanted to come see for herself to test Solomon and to see if all she had heard was true or not. And so she got up from her royal throne and she came in this large entourage to the city of Jerusalem and she questioned Solomon. And afterwards, this is what she declared in Second Chronicles. It tells us this, chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, verse 8. She says, it was a true report which I heard in my own land upon, or excuse me, about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. She continues, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king of the Lord your God, because your king, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. She ended up giving to King Solomon an incredible amount of gifts and precious goods, more gifts and precious goods than any other at any other time. With all the years of people bringing tribute before Solomon, none gave as great a gift as the queen of Sheba. Okay, She gave Solomon gold and spices and great precious stones, all in abundance as a tribute, acknowledging him and acknowledging the God of Israel. Listen, Solomon was a wise king, okay? And he spoke words of great wisdom. And he was called the preacher. And he spoke some 3,000 proverbs, according to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. He composed over 1,000 songs. And yet there was there in the midst of the Jews of Jesus' day a greater than Solomon, someone whose wisdom far exceeded that of Solomon. You see, Jesus' wisdom is greater than Solomon. The pagan queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's wisdom. She left her palace to seek him out and hear from him herself. She came away from her interaction praising him and praising the God of the Israelites, dedicating everything of worth and value that she had to Solomon and the God of Israel. And yet these Jews only come to Jesus to see a sign or a miracle, to test him and try and trap him in their questions. And you see, the stark contrast here is this. While the Queen of Sheba came with intentions of challenging Solomon and testing him to see if the reports she heard were true, she came with an open mind. She came willing to receive the truth. But these Jews, however, they are hard-hearted. They will not allow themselves to be moved from their position no matter how much wisdom, no matter how much truth Jesus shares, shares with them. And for that reason, Jesus declares the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for not properly responding to the ministry and the wisdom and the wonders of Jesus Christ. Now the point Jesus is making is the same here in regard to these two examples. These two examples show how pagan Gentile people came and heard a lesser witness, a lesser message, a lesser messenger, and actually responded to the message and glorified God. Yet the evil generation of the Jews that were before Jesus had not responded. The Jews are going to have to give an account for why they did not choose to believe upon and receive Jesus and his message, and they will have nothing to stand upon. They will have absolutely no excuses. And herein lies a principle I believe we should note and we should pull out for ourselves to make application to our own lives here, you guys. Listen, we all will be held responsible for the knowledge that we have been given. Some of us will be exposed to more than others, but none will have any excuse for why they did not respond to the gospel message. 
As I mentioned last week, I quoted from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to do it again this morning. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." All are without excuse. None of us will have an excuse when that day comes and we're before the Lord and the Lord wants to know, what did you do with Jesus? Well, you know, I wasn't sure and I, you know, this and this happened and no excuses. We've all been given enough information to know and realize who God is And there are some who, instead of responding to that knowledge, they shut it out. They suppress it, not wanting to glorify God, not wanting to give thanks to God, and their hearts are darkened, and they became fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, according to the psalmist. They are corrupt, and they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. God expects us to respond to the light that we have been given. And the Jews of Jesus' day had before them the very light of the world in Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our final section dealing with Jesus' teaching of the parable of the lighted lamp. Let's read 33 through 36 and we'll wrap this all up. Jesus says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. This parable can be a little bit confusing because it says some of the same things that are associated with other teachings of Jesus that have different interpretations and different applications. Okay, Jesus begins this parable by speaking about how no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may uh, see the light. Okay, now this is not the first time Jesus has used this example of a lamp to make a point or to build a teaching off of. In Matthew chapter 5, he says something similar to his disciples and he encourages them to let their light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when he talks about, hey, no one lights a lamp and and hides it, you know, the application for his disciples was, hey, go shine your light, okay? Let everyone see that, you know, God's working in you, okay? But in Mark's gospel, he uses similar wording again to teach a lesson about how all things will be brought out into the open, how there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed and how all secrets will be brought into the light using the same introductory type of phrase. No one lights a lamp and then hides it, but puts it on a lampstand. And then he goes on to basically say, everything's going to be brought out into the light. Application's different. Teaching's different, right? Same beginning. Even earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 8, if you flip back just a few pages, you'll see that Luke uses this same terminology to introduce the parallel account to Mark's teaching about things being brought out into the open. And so we see how Jesus uses the picture of a lamp to teach about a couple of different things. Here, the audience is much different from the ones Jesus spoke these words to previously. And just as the audience is different, so too is the interpretation and the application of this particular parable. You see, we can't just say, oh, when Jesus says this, this is what it means, because the context is different. And so you have to understand the surrounding context, the audience, excuse me, that he's addressing and the following interpretation may be different. And so we see that that's what's happening here. So Jesus tells us that the lamp of the body is the eye. And he basically says that our eye is either good or bad. It's healthy or unhealthy. Uh, Your 
translation may read clear or, or dark or evil. There's a lot of different terms that are used here. If your eye is good or healthy, if it's clear, if it's open, well, your eye will allow light to shine in from the outside, penetrating to our inner bodies. It's kind of like a window in a sense. You know, you, if your eye is open, the light comes and it comes in through your eye and it shines through your whole body. Okay? If your eye is evil or if it's bad or if it's unhealthy, okay, it's dark, if it's shut, well, then it won't receive the light and, and allow it, uh, that light won't shine into the inner parts of our bodies. The result's obvious. Okay? If your eye allows in the light, you're going to be filled with light. If your eye does not receive the light, well, you're going to be filled with darkness. You see, it doesn't matter how bright the light or how much light an eye is exposed to. If it's closed off, if it's a bad eye or it's an unhealthy eye, it's a blind eye, it won't make a difference. Okay? If someone has a blind eye, they can't you know, see light at all. It doesn't matter if you're shining a big old flashlight in their eye or if you've got a small little lamp or you've got the the light of the sun, like it's not going to make a difference, right? Their eye has to be open. It has to be healthy, willing to take in the light if it is to have any impact upon the inside. And listen, by default, you guys, by default, we are filled with darkness. When we are brought into this world, we all start off in the dark. And it's only after we receive the light that we can be called sons of the light. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul explains how we were once in darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Second Corinthians states how God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter writes about how we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The book of John, the gospel account of John, it uses the theme and imagery of light throughout it in describing Jesus' coming and his ministry. In John chapter 1, John uh, the apostle, he describes Jesus as the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. In John chapter 3, Jesus proclaims, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In John chapter 8, Jesus plainly states, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus really gets to the heart of what he is teaching here in this parable regarding the lighted lamp. In John chapter 12, Jesus states this, and I believe this is really the interpretation of the parable of the lighted lamp. He says this, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see, in this parable, Jesus states, Therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Jesus is calling the people to check and see whether they are filled with light or if they are filled with darkness. Do they have good eyes or bad eyes? Are they opened or are they closed to the light? See, if they're not willing to take in the light, their bodies will be filled with darkness. They will remain in darkness. However, if on the other hand, they are open to receiving the light, Jesus will shine his light upon them and allow them to become children of the light and their whole bodies will be filled with this light. Jesus is calling these people to respond to the light that he is giving. He is teaching them how they each must choose for themselves whether to receive the light or to reject the light. The opportunity to respond is before them and they need to do so now while they have the chance. And the application for us is the same. Church family, we must be open to receiving Jesus and all that he has for us. We must not try and hide in darkness out of fear of what others may say or think or do. We must respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ while we have the chance. Because we don't know how many more opportunities we will have to get right with the Lord. 
We don't know when our time here on earth will be up and our decision for Christ will be cemented for all of eternity. Remember that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. You are either for him or against him. If you have put off making the choice, you need to stop doing so. You need to respond to the light that has been shown to you. You need to open your eyes and see the goodness of the Lord, His great love for you, His desire for you, and gladly receive all that He has in store for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's the message in the heart of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message. Lord, You just... um, Really, we're calling them out, letting them know now is the time. They need to decide. While the light is there, while they have this lamp before them, they need to receive that light into their lives. Lord, that you might fill their entire body with light and remove every bit of darkness from within us. By nature, Lord, we were all at one time filled with darkness children of darkness, but Lord, your light has shined upon us. And, and Lord, I, I believe, I trust, I, I, I hope that most here have responded to that light. They have received you into uh, their life, Lord. You are their Lord and Savior. They have confessed their sins. They have uh, given their life to you, Lord, and you are Uh, their father and they are your sons and daughters but lord i know there are people here that i don't know very well lord and i don't know if maybe perhaps today is the day that they need to respond that you're giving to them an opportunity this morning to make the choice and so lord i do ask that if there is anybody here that needs to respond to the message of the goodness of the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, Lord, that today would be the day that they would receive the light, that they would stop suppressing the truth, that they would stop trying to make excuses, and that they would just yield their hearts to you, and that you would do an incredible work in their hearts and life. Lord, that you would wash them and cleanse them, forgive them of all their sins, Lord, and give them a right standing with you. Lord, I pray that if there's any here that that is something that you're wanting for them to do this morning, that they would do so boldly, Lord. And then they might even acknowledge that, Lord, tonight by raising their hand up nice and high, saying, I need to make that decision here this morning. Lord, is there anybody here that needs to make that decision? Today's the day you stop making excuses. Today's the day you finally say, yes, you're right, Lord. I'm wrong. I need you in my life. Is there anybody here that needs to make that decision today? No? Father, I thank you. I thank you for these, your children, and I thank you that you've given us an opportunity to choose you, Lord. Love demands a choice. You do not force us to surrender to you. You do not force us to come to you, Lord. You've given us an opportunity to, though, and a choice. And so, Lord, I just pray that we've all made that choice. Lord, that we would be hearers of your word and doers of your word that we would be responsible with the information, with the knowledge that's been shared with us. And Lord, that we would live for you and that we would respond to the gospel message each day in how we live our lives. May you lead us and guide us and empower us that we might be bold examples for you. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.